Welcome to Changing Places, the podcast that believes places are powerful agents of positive social transformation. Each episode, Dean Keith Diaz-Moore from the University of Utah's College of Architecture and Planning will take you behind the teaching, research, and practice at the leading edge of innovation occurring in our college. Through informal conversations, you will learn the emerging issues, why you should care, and what you can do about them to change our world for the better. Welcome back to Changing Places, everyone. I'm your host, Keith Diaz-Moore. Today, we're joined by Professor Keith Bartholomew, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs for the College of Architecture and Planning at the University of Utah. Professor Bartholomew is a recognized leader in the legal and policy aspects of planning, particularly in regard to transportation mobility. But today we'll be taking advantage of his recognition as an elite teacher at the University of Utah as recognized by his 2021 Distinguished Teaching Award. Higher education and teaching modalities have experienced a rapid change since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, and most are aware that the U and other institutions of higher learning were largely online last academic year. But now in a post-COVID vaccination world, what does higher education look like? And where is higher education going? We're fortunate Keith is willing to share his insights with us today. Keith, welcome. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. So as I mentioned, my guess is our audience is is well familiar with the rapid transition the U and other universities went through in March of 2020 to essentially leave behind their teaching modalities of previous decades with the move entirely online. Some have referred to that switch as heroic for institutions that are notoriously resistant to change. Others point out the significant costs in terms of student belonging and the disparity of impact this has had on first-gen and students of lower socioeconomic status. I was wondering, as you reflect on the last 18 months, Keith, what would you view as the positives but also the costs we have witnessed in this shift to online instruction? They're really all over the map, and and it's interesting to see how they cut in unprepared or unanticipated ways. On the one hand, what we've seen is a lot more accessibility to higher education resources by the move to a more digital platform. One of the things we study when we look at transportation planning is we study the kind of impedance factor that comes with transportation, the fact that you have to spend energy and time uh, and frequently hassle uh, to get from one place to the other Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to access something that you want to accomplish or achieve or obtain, in this case, uh, excuse me, education. The digital technologies that we've been using the past 18 months have essentially wiped away those impedances. Mm -hmm. And so we now have a much more open platform allowing people with all sorts of different constraints on their lives from time constraints to family constraints to economic constraints, being able to access education in ways that they couldn't do that uh, do before. And, And that's really encouraging to see. On the other hand, uh, education is very much a communal activity. Uh, uh, Parker Palmer writes so beautifully about this that all knowledge is communal. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we're also, I guess, relearning with the switch to digital technologies is that digital is virtual. Right. (laughs) The the, uh, 
the paradox is that by having so much more access, we actually also have less access to each other because the digital paradigm is two-dimensional and, and literally, but right. also figuratively, that you are not fully with someone else when you are addressing them through a Zoom window. Right, right. We'll often think about that physically, but it's also emotionally, right, that connection that you have. Um, so you've talked about kind of the, the positives of this and the negatives of this. I'm wondering how these thoughts and, and reflections have impacted the way you're now teaching in, uh, let's call it the post-COVID vaccination, but not yet post-COVID world. <laughs> yeah, it's really the Wild West right now. It was almost easier last year when everything was online and we were encouraged by our university to have things presented as asynchronously as possible. The concern was that if we were all doing what they call the, the interactive video conferencing model of uh, class presentations, and we were all doing that simultaneously, there wouldn't be enough bandwidth uh, digitally or electronically to be able to accommodate all those users simultaneously. And so the word was, everything's online, and if you can, Record your lectures so that they can be accessed during off hours so we're not getting a, a kind of a surge of demand all at the same time. And I did that, and it was really, really difficult. I like being with students. I like being with people. I enjoy being in the classroom physically with others. And so not only was this a switch to a digital platform where it's two-dimensional, two as I was saying before, right. but it's now removed. There's no one there. I am speaking to the white light at the top <laughs> of my laptop. Right. And that white light's not giving me very much positive reinforcement. And so that was really tough. Uh, but we knew exactly what to expect. And so everything was kind of scripted out for us. Now we are in this mm, kind of netherworld, kind of delta variant <laughs> hybrid situation where we think we're going to be in person in the classroom. But we've got some people who are testing positive, some people who are vaccinated, some people who are wearing masks, some people who are immunocompromised uh, right. and very concerned about their health or their health of their loved ones. And so it right now is more the demands are on on students and on faculty are more diverse and more, uh, I guess, um, demanding, <laughs> more challenging than they have been in the past. And so what I find myself doing is trying to hit as many different modality, modalities as I can. Uh, mm -hmm. In the class I'm currently teaching, uh, it was listed as being an in-person class. And so <laughs> I was anticipating everybody being in the classroom and very eager to see that happen. Right. And one hour before the very first lecture on the first day of the semester, I got an email from one of my students telling me that they were COVID positive. And I was like, oh, my gosh. What are we going to do now? Because this person is now in quarantine. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, you know, there were some other cases that came up in the class. And all of a sudden, my students are starting to peel away, uh, either because they are concerned about their own health or they have uh, uh, close exposure to other people who have uh, tested positive. It was just all over the map. And what 
I ended up having to do was to first open a Zoom channel. Mm -hmm. So all of my classes are being taught in a classroom with some people in the room while simultaneously also having a Zoom channel open. And I still have those recorded lectures from last fall when I taught this class. And so I've got those available to my students on our Canvas webpage as well. And so I sense... In a sense, I have three options for my students. They can come to class physically, they can come to class virtually through Zoom, or they can watch the asynchronous video. And I've got students all over the map. It's really hard to keep track of them all. Um, It seems to be kind of working. Well, if I can explore that a little bit more. So... um... If I may, before COVID came, I've been a guest in your your classroom, and it strikes me that often, while yes, there is some lecture, you you like that give and take with students. You like to prompt questions, have them come back. Um, uh, I suppose one can call it the Socratic method uh, of teaching. Then. COVID hits, we need to go asynchronous. It becomes much more heavy lecture um, mode, right? You delivering didactic, I guess, kind of delivery. Then one hour before class where you think you're going back to normal, now all of a sudden you're, you're, you're facing the fact that, okay, this now has to be hybrid. And, and I'm wondering what you, um, what you think are, are, are perhaps maybe the, the, the positives maybe that are being gleaned out of this this dexterity that that we're all kind of being forced to to uh, produce I think I, the only way I can address that question is is just personally um, and I, I I wouldn't pretend that this would be true for other instructors for me personally I think this challenge is exciting <laughs> um, I like to teach on the edge. Uh, I'd like to have uh, in my portfolio, in my repertoire, uh, classes that I know really well, where I know the material really well, where I can just kind of drop in and go. And that's fun and it's exciting. And if that's all I do, it becomes routine and then kind of lifeless. And so mm-hmm. what I find is necessary for good teaching is something that's energizing and there's nothing more energizing than being slightly uncomfortable <laughs> and being a little bit on the edge and, and having something that challenges you. Uh, I, you know, I used to oh, – I never quite did this, but I used to imagine how exciting it would be uh, to go into a classroom with a stack of PowerPoint slides and then to have the slides right when you're ready to start blow up. right. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it's just you and the whiteboard and 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 the topic and the right. material and your classroom and your students, most importantly. And that's a very exciting environment. And although I've never actually intentionally planned that to happen, it, of course, has happened because anybody who's taught for any period of time has their PowerPoint slides blow up on them <laughs> once or twice. So it just happens. And so I have had that happen. And it is, it's liberating in a way. Yeah, it's unnerving because it's like, oh, I had this great image or I had this great graph that I wanted to show you that really demonstrated how these different factors work. But I've just got words and I've got this, you know, uh, easy erase marker here and let's recreate it on this whiteboard. And I, I find students love that. 
students are like, oh, there's something happening here. Right. It's not television anymore. <laughs> I, I, I can actually engage here with what's happening on the board. You know, sometimes, speaking of the board, the whiteboard, in, and we've been talking about technology, I like going downscale. And, you know, part of it is the fact that I was born in, born in 1960, and so I am uh, old school by definition. But I also think that when things get too high-tech, it starts to seem too much like, I said, television, because mm -hmm. that's an old reference. It's too much <laughs> like your smartphone. It's just too oh, uh, scripted, manufactured, processed. Uh, it's, it's too uh, buttoned down and, and not organic enough. Right. And uh, in my, the class that I teach every spring on land use law, the highest technology that I use is that whiteboard. It's just the whiteboard. I mean, when I moved from a blackboard with chalk to a whiteboard with dry erase racer, <laughs> oh my, dry erase marker, <laughs> right. that was a big, big, big change. Uh, and that, that's as far as I took took it. And students seem to like that. I, I started doing this a number of years ago. And um, and it just it's a it's a kind of a magical thing when you start class by writing on the board your daily menu. Students are watching you. They're looking up at the board at the words that you're writing on the right. board. It's kind of like this performance art yes. you're doing, and they pay attention to it. And if if you had a, a PowerPoint slide that had the same stuff, it's like okay, yeah, you know, they're not really engaged. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I think uh, to kind of build on that that metaphor a little bit about performance art and how often what faculty want, and I'll say higher education in general, is really the script, right? That we want to be scripted, know what we're doing, and you're speaking more now to um, kind of improvisation uh, that needs to happen. And and I want to think about this in broad, big picture here with higher education. So one of the things that's happened through um, through COVID is we you know we made this pivot to online. Line. And what you've really heard probably over the last 12 months or so is this notion of, oh, that that's now how, how we need to deliver. Let's try to move as many things online and have online programs available because more people can access them. I, I have a sense you think things are perhaps a bit nuanced more than that in terms of where higher education may be going. I think they are. And I, and I think we need to use this opportunity to try to the best – uh, that we can to optimize for these different mm -hmm. modes and, and, and the, the benefits that each one has. Uh, and I think it would be a mistake to go in thinking that one particular mode is the best at delivering all content. Right, right. I think there are certain modes that favor certain types of content. Certainly, a, a more didactic lecture style is going to be more adaptable uh, and a, maybe a more appropriate to the use of recorded video or at least live video. Sure. Uh, the more interactive uh, types of, of education and, and deliveries are going to favor more in-person interactions. That being said, it's interesting to see how digital technologies can be used to create more improvisatory methods of, of classroom experiences. And I haven't 
done this myself, but I, I see other faculty doing this and I put it on my list to, to try to incorporate sometime soon, is, is the use of uh, digital technology, Zoom and other um, uh, IVC types of, of technologies, uh, to bring in experts from the field, from around the corner, from across the region or right. across the world. And how that can be really interesting and, and to get some real-time interaction between the students, if they're in a room or on Zoom, and the person who is there from London on Zoom. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I You know, I think as you've been uh, talking, uh, one of the things that has come to mind is, so there's these different modalities. They each have uh, strengths to them. We need to kind of lean into those strengths, if you will. On the other end, I, I, I think it also uh, it begins to illustrate that there are um, there are different students that have different strengths, have different learning abilities, that therefore might be better served by this this larger menu of how we might be delivering content. I'm wondering what your thoughts might be on that. Yeah, I've heard a lot from students all over the map. Uh, some are genuinely sad, and it just breaks my heart uh, to speak to, to these students. They're really sad. Uh, to be at, at home in front of their computer so often or so much of the time. And they really want to be in a room with others. And they seek that kind of community and that sense of connection. And I don't think that a digital only or a digital heavy uh, mode of learning works for them very well. Um, on the other hand, there are other students who just are fine with that and that frees them up to be more attentive to other things in their lives that they need to focus on and to be able to do, frankly, better work than having to worry about the commute and the parking and, and all the hassle. Sure. So um, I, my, my sense is uh, the, the university, as you mentioned in your intro, has been – and by this, I mean the kind of the uh, the lowercase u university, not the University of Utah per right. se. But I think academia has been uh, pretty bound to its traditions and very impervious to change. I mean, we still wear the robes from the Elizabethan era. Right. At, at for every, commencement. Yes. For every graduation. So, you know, we still are very, very tied to our traditions. And those traditions work well for a certain type of student, and they don't work well for others. And it's, I think it's necessary for us to uh, help our society move toward to move toward greater inclusivity and greater, greater diversity by creating as as much uh, flexibility. So in, in how we teach and the modalities that we bring uh, and the content that we bring uh, to uh, bring together uh, a student body that is as diverse as our society. So with these th thoughts in mind uh, that you've been discussing, what do you think are the key concepts that higher education needs to keep in mind as it evolves over this ne next decade and whatever our post-COVID reality shape takes? Well, I, one of the things that I, I think I've just seen recently, and it's just occurring to me as, as I'm talking, and so maybe this isn't a fully formed thought, um, but I like to improvise, <laughs> as, we've, as we've already talked about. I, I, I get this sense that 
by moving to at least multi-modalities or or at least in some cases favoring a digital modality that we are using this primarily as a way of reaching a greater, a larger audience. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of a traditional thing about higher education is, uh, at least for a state university, is how can we get more in the door? In this right. case, more signed in, you know, digitally. And greater numbers, uh, there are good things to say about a larger university, a larger class size. It means more inclusion. It means uh, a broader uh, rate, uh, impact, a, a wider mm -hmm. uh, projection onto solving society's problems. And I think all of those things are positive. However, education is an, a retail enterprise. It is not a wholesale uh, enterprise. It is one by one. And even in the biggest auditorium classroom with the most didactic lecture style class, the learning happens at an individual level. And I've taught those larger classes and I've always struggled with trying to personalize the experience to the degree I can as a single individual up at the front. And it, I'm not always successful, of course, but you know, the light comes on or the light doesn't come on right. one by one by one by one. And so uh, I think I, I teach writing in my fall class and this the nowhere do you see this uh, truth come shining through more than in the context of a writing class, because writing in particular, writing is so personalized, it's so individualized, and you learn how to write if you are lucky to have a mentor that works with you one-on-one. -on -one. I've got 50 students in my class this semester. Doing that one-on-one -on -one with 50 students is a challenge. It's really, really hard. And I think that, that what I'm learning here is that we we shouldn't be using this pivot towards digital modalities as just another way to cram more students into uh, a, perhaps an already overloaded uh, teaching uh, portfolio that a lot of our faculty complain about. You know, sometimes those complaints are you know I don't know they seem malinger <laughs> malingering and I and I'm I I don't uh, I don't want to just say every time a, a faculty member complains about class size that we should be jumping to uh, reduce their class sizes. On the other hand, I think there is something to be said by um, what's lost by just having more. Um, especially if we're not increasing the resources that are available, you know, principally by having more faculty or, or giving them more time to teach. Well, making that uh, an observation here that, you know, what you really were talking about there is, is, is lean into student success over student headcount. Yeah. Um, and and as, as you were just talking about how you teach your course uh, your, uh, that focuses on writing in the fall, um, 
you know, it's, what it's bringing to mind is that clearly it is more than the three hours of scheduled time during the week, that there's a lot of one-on-one time <laughs> that happens outside, right? There you go. You're laughing. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that, you know, the, this this um, understanding that many people f- seem to think that we show up for our classes and they go. And clearly you're showing more. And I'm wondering if, let's say, Perhaps the Zoom technology might be enabling that a little bit more in terms of the fact students can do it from their work or uh, or home and connect with you, and and you might have some greater flexibility in terms of how you might be able to schedule those things. I was just wondering about your thoughts on that. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I, uh, you and I have talked about this before, uh, obviously offline, but. What One of the things that I'm really excited about right now is this idea of embedded mentoring, that, that you take a class like the class I'm teaching this semester, which is listed as a lecture class, and I, it is. It meets the university definition for a lecture class, but it is writing intensive, as we've said. And writing, as we've also said, is something that is mentored individually. So how do you take something that is a lecture class with 50 students and turn it into something that's more of an individualized experience? And Zoom is facilitating that. And so I have this semester uh, about 20 hours. No, that's too much. About 15 hours every week set aside for student appointments, Mm -hmm. which is, I've always been pretty accessible to my students, but this is high for me. So 15 hours out of my week, I've that's just on a typical week. I have slots that students can sign up for on their own digitally. It's on a, you know, I, I hesitate to use a brand name here, but I guess we've already been talking about Zoom. Uh, I use a Google Sheet that I, I post on uh, an accessible drive that students can access, and they sign up for their own appointments. They don't have to call. They don't have to send me an email. Right. I don't have to write it into my calendar. They just I've put aside the time slots. They sign up for them, and then they show up most of the time right. on Zoom. They can come to the, the office if they want, but most of the time they show up via Zoom and that has facilitated a lot more uh, participation by my students. They are coming to my office hours much more than they ever used to because it's easier. You don't have that travel impedance. But also, it doesn't take as much courage. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, students are, I think, as a, as a body, they, are, they tend towards bashfulness. Right. They are intimidated. Mm-hmm. Universities are intimidating places. Faculty uh, are kind of leading the, the charge there. And so to actually you know, pull up your socks and march over to a faculty office and knock on the door and ask for assistance takes a lot of gumption. Yeah, that's right. It takes a lot less to just click the Zoom button. And, and, and that, that sense of distance that we've already talked about that Zoom right. uh, is necessarily, you know, providing is, in this case, a, a benefit. It actually reduces some of the barriers by using a barrier. <laughs> right, right. Very, uh, very interesting here. Um, sadly, we're already uh, out of time, but I, I do like to ask a recurring question of our guests. Um, As you know, our college is the first architecture and planning college in the nation to espouse what we call an ethic of care to underline our professional education. So why do you care and why do you think others should care about the education of future architects, designers, and planners? 
Well, uh, there are lots of answers to that question. And you said this is the last question, so we could go on for <laughs> right. a, the same amount of time we've already spent just talking about that topic. Um, specific to our disciplines, to architecture, planning, and design, of course, these are the professions of the built environment. And the built environment is key to society's health, maintenance, and continuity. Without solving the challenges of the built environment, we cannot solve equity. We cannot solve shelter. We cannot solve climate change. These really existential uh, challenges that are, are really at the, at the forefront of what society is facing right now do not get solved without solving the challenges of the built environment. And so therefore, those who are involved in the creation or the education of the next generation of professionals in these fields, these are the people who are helped, helping uh, to, to lead the way um, towards uh, a better future and, and one that's more inclusive and more caring. And so that's crucial. But broadening out further for beyond our disciplines, I also think that education um, is a enterprise of caring and nurturing and fostering. Mm -hmm. uh, it is pedagogy is you know to raise the child. We have all been raised by others, and we kind of pay it forward when we enter the classroom and create a hospitable environment that encourages the, the younger people in the room uh, to find their way and to, to make their mark uh, in their communities and in their lives and to find their paths. And, and so there's nothing, I don't believe there's uh, any vocation that is more ennobling uh, than to be um, participating in that process with people who are, are, are seeking, seeking their future um, and, and seeking kind of their fulfillment. Keith, I can't thank you enough for sharing your wisdom today and for inspiring us. We'll need to have you back and continue the conversation. Keith Bartholomew is Professor of City and Metropolitan Planning at the University of Utah. If you found this work interesting, you can find out more by visiting cap.utah.edu. On behalf of the Changing Places podcast, hosted by the College of Architecture and Planning at the University of Utah, I'm Dean Keith Diaz-Moore. Take care, everyone.